0: A lot of the people I talked to, they said, you know, you want to you want to code for things to different differentiate yourself, you know, but is logging or you know, even security, is that something that really is, is setting you apart from your competition, truly?
1: Right. Well, unless really? it's in your name. <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: listening to the Achieving DevOps podcast. I'm Dave Harrison. Join us as we talk about delivering software reliably in a higher velocity. Um, so everyone, I wanted to introduce you to a good friend of mine. I interviewed uh boy, a while ago for for the book on Achieving DevOps. My my friend's name is Tyler Hardison. And Tyler, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and, and tell us about, you know, your company and your history?
1: Sure. So uh, I'm Tyler Hardison, and I'm currently Chief Technology Officer for Red Hawk Network Security out of Bend, Oregon. And uh, gosh, I have been doing software development since probably the late 90s, been through all kinds of different iterations and phases of fat and thin apps, smell, soap, all that fun stuff. Nowadays, I'm focused on very tight, small uh, containers uh, for doing uh, lightweight work in each area and stop doing monolithic stuff, at least in theory.
0: <laughs> awesome. Where, what got you into the whole security world? I mean, that to, to most developers, <clears throat> it's still a dark art.
1: Right, so I come from the financial industry where security is a huge deal um where they're you know at least annually measured on their ability to provide uh, security for the organization so secure software development was always a top priority in my mind especially driven uh by things like the graham leach biley act glba also uh, sarbanes oxley uh, earlier than that Mm -hmm. but both of those really drove the whole privacy home and a lot of the financial institutions and publicly traded companies uh for the most part took it seriously you know we we at least at Red Hawk, we see some organizations that are more mature than others in that area. <clears throat> but I started focusing on how to do software development securely because I didn't want my name
0: plastered all over
1: a breach newspaper that so and so was responsible for this particular breach. So,
0: not not a comfortable thing um, to have happen. Oh no, no not at all. When I worked when I work for a company, I'm not going to name. Uh, about ten mm-hmm. years ago, I was literally driving in. I pulled over. And it got the Oregonian. And there in the front page was my company. And we had sent out these mailers. And like on the label was everyone's name, social security number, phone numbers, all of this stuff. And worse, we'd sent it. They were mislabeled so that so that the wrong people were getting, was, was getting this information, basically. You know, the wrong subscribers. It was a massive, um, I think at least six figure um, of people's personal information that got out. Yeah, Really bloody. And I knew the guy that had done the mailer, like, oh, like, oh he knew his name. And, you know, you can imagine what he went through that. Work. Yeah, he kept his oh, job. But it was bloody.
1: Oh, and it's brutal. And it's it's something that can follow you for a long time. And so that was my driving factor. And so I focused on getting a CISSP a few years ago now, really focused on secure software development as my specialty. But, you know, obviously the CISSP is so broadly covered in so many different security areas that I had to become a professional in each one. so. It's uh, it's definitely been a wild ride, something that certainly I didn't think I would fall into. I thought I would just be a senior systems administrator forever who knew how to do shell scripts really well and you know, yeah. full-blown software development.
0: Where do you see – you mentioned containers. You mentioned, hey, we're mm-hmm. breaking away from the monolith. Where do you right. see yourself, like, in five years? Where, so, what, what new fields are ahead of you?
1: Yeah, I know. And it's, it's funny because my boss asks me the same thing, right? I'm the yeah. technology officer. So I'm supposed to have, you know, my right. pulse on this stuff. I'm just amazed at uh, how much the cloud is expanding, uh, how much Amazon is just diving into all kinds of new areas and trying out new things. Um, so you know, quite frankly, I'm mostly just watching what these big guys do and then picking out things that really makes sense. So uh, two weeks ago, I went to Kubernetes boot camp at OSCON in Portland, and that was uh, kind of an eye opener. So now I'm like, you know, okay, now we're going to throw Kubernetes and that's going to make a lot of sense, particularly for us to be able to do uh, uh, hybrid deployments between cloud and uh, on-prem. So I'm excited about Kubernetes now, um, but gosh, in, in five years, I mean, things can change a lot. We have Um, You know, if I look back at my history five years ago, I was doing a lot of Pearl heavy heavy lifting in the financial industry because it was really great at taking care of the stuff I needed to take care of. And I haven't written a line of Pearl. And it's just kind of interesting that things will, you know, spring up, die off. Things will improve and get better. Right now, I'm, you know, from a user interface perspective, I'm really focused on learning React and, you know, how to work with that. But, you know. From containers and and the ability to do my deployments. I mean, right now, uh, Red Hawk's entire portal development is is for for the most part automated. We're just writing code, checking it in, and once it's checked in, the you know the little robots jump in from the back scene and start building out my software and deploying it to a test server. And then all I have to do is jump on the test server and you know see how my code is doing and make sure it's you know passing all the checks. Containers, so, and I and see more automation. Advantage. It
0: really helps with portability and and repeatability. Absolutely. Yeah, so um, and I'd love to circle back to Kubernetes in in a second, but do you have any like life lessons or breakthrough moments um, just looking back on your career? This could be personal, professional. Sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so it's funny because I got your list of questions, right? So I'm kind of pre-formulating my answers and thinking (laughs) about it. Um, (laughs) One of the things that I um, learned very early on is to be flexible. Um, it's really easy to jump onto the fan base bag- bandwagon of one particular technology, and you, you kind of paint yourself into a corner, right? Because what if that technology goes away? I know lots of systems administrators who are, you know, looking for work because a lot of their uh, jobs that they were doing have been automated or moved away. And it's <clears throat> it's interesting. Someone said, and I'm not sure who, that if you look at your job now and you see areas where you're just simply a monkey pulling levers that the chances are your job's going to be automated and so you have to f- constantly looking for them and as you get older it gets harder right so what i've done is i've i listened to my junior developers you know they're bringing ideas to me they're saying hey have you thought about this no i haven't let's take a look because they're the ones who are you know either in communities where they're using technologies that are, uh, you know, pretty exciting, or they have just come out of school and, you know, the school is teaching a new stack. And so that's good as well. So really, um, I think the life lesson for me is to not get stuck in that corner and not get stuck in the mindset of my way is the best way, because ultimately it'll be your undoing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, it's hard in our industry. You know, I myself, I'm entering into my 50s you know and yeah you don't i look around i don't see a lot of cutting-edge developers in their 50s or 60s No. You know, at some point we say oh the old way is the best way you know and it's that's the tough part about our industry is that once once we start thinking that we start to slip pretty quickly red hawk's an interesting company um kind of similar to, to five talents um you're based out of central oregon this is not traditionally like a silicon forest right
1: mm.
0: no Is it hard to find good people? I mean, the lifestyle is kind of cool. Everybody's into, you know, shredding on Mount Bachelor and you know, (laughs) kind of the Central Oregon lifestyle, right? With biking and fishing. But is it is it hard to get good quality people out there?
1: It is. So you know, you mentioned our our uh, our friends over at, at Five Talent. We talk quite a bit about that and it's it is difficult and so you know what they've done is they've expanded into you know like the Portland and Seattle markets and are hiring people there because they can't get enough people to move into Central Oregon and Central Oregon has its own problems where we just don't have enough housing available and enough of an inventory to really import folks uh, like we need. And so we have to absolutely rely on remote workers as much as possible. The good news is for us, because we are somewhat of a resort community, is that a lot of folks do want to work work and live here. So they do make great efforts to to try and join us through that aspect. But yeah, absolutely. My last several hires were not within the Central Oregon area. They were definitely outside.
0: Yeah, interesting. Um, what's, your, what's the favorite part of your job, being a CTO? <laughs> uh, <laughs>
1: aside from the herding cats... Um, and you know, it's, I, I love my guys. I have a great, the herding cats. Um, the part I like is that I do get to keep my eye on things that are happening out in the industry and talk to my peers quite a bit and listen to the challenges they're going through as well as solutions. And and uh possible ideas for improvement you know it's i get connected to technology leaders all over the world and get to hear what they're doing and that's exciting and so um you know i learn a lot from everybody else i'm told that people learn from me but uh, i'm i i want to be humble and say that you know it's <laughs> I, I think i've learned more from everybody else um and it's true because it's just no one person can do the things you know it, 20 years ago one person can kick off a project develop it from start to finish and roll out right um, that's how right. a lot of your small tech companies got or sorry, your large tech companies that are out there today got started was you know one or two guys getting together it takes teams of people now because the technology uh, landscape is just so huge and so it's uh, for me as a chief technology officer it's it's not just you know choosing technologies and making decisions it's also you know choosing the people who i know are going to help drive the company forward so i th- i would have to say that working with my people Coming up with new ideas with them and listening to what you know suggestions they have is probably the most exciting part of it.
0: And, and that was really, in, when I talked to you a year ago or so, that was, I think, yeah. one of the most interesting parts. Like I expected I'm going to get like a deep <laughs> dive into security and DevSecOps. And, you know, you got the knowledge, mm-hmm. but the most interesting part was you said, we talked for a long time about interviewing and selecting out like yep. really competent problem solvers. Did you want to kind of, Talk about how what you've kind of your process there with hiring the best of the best. Yeah.
1: So it, it's we talked about it before that a lot of interviewers start off with the whole okay, we want you to, you know, write a sort algorithm that does the following. And it's like, yeah you know, that, great, that's
0: interesting. It's you can show off or, what you learned in right, school. The top 20 yeah. questions, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's great. And I think it's that that is shows a lack of creativity on the interviewer's part. Uh, Because what you'll get is the folks who really know what they're doing will be bored and will say, "Okay, yeah, this is one of those type of companies. They're looking for, you know, just performance for the sake of, you know, keeping things rolling forward. What I'm looking for is for the ability for a person to adapt to my questions. So I'll ask, I mean, not the square round, you know, manhole cover argument or anything like that. I'm asking him questions like you know what's the most interesting problem you solved? tell me about it what got you excited about it what i'm looking for is passion and sometimes the problems are hilarious you know like small misconfiguration on a server caused and you know what i'm looking for is what did you do to adapt you know did you automate that piece of your job away where you didn't have to worry about it it was always done right after that or did you you know uh, figure (laughs) out some other method for configuration storage you know these are the kind of things that i want i want people who are not just going to grab a technology off the shelf and start using it, but also to think about creatively how it's affecting, you know, their daily lives and making their lives easier.
0: Yeah, I I, I think that's interesting because when I was doing interviewing quite a bit. Um, we started out with like the, the best of the best, kind of C-sharp quest, picked out our favorite. And we were selecting out for basically, you know, um, well, that's not, usually that's not the, the skills you're using day to day. And finally, yeah. we just said, let's do a whiteboard interview where I'm going to walk in like a business analyst and here's the problem that my customer is facing. And they want to come up with this application, solve this problem on a whiteboard. and And I would get like such better um, I'd find the problem solvers, the people that could engage with the business, come up with a good technical solution and be able to articulate it clearly. It's a hard skill to get.
1: It is absolutely a hard skill. And communication was key. And that's something I pick up really quickly in the interview is how does this person communicate, how they react to you know particular problems. <clears throat> so we do ask the technical questions. Of course, you have to. But instead of looking for a correct answer, we're looking to see how they approach the problem. And so are they... Are they spending more time on just the technical aspects of the problem or are they going to ask questions? Okay, well, why are, what is this for? What are we doing? Um, is this a real world applicable solution that can go out there? Because, you know, the, the whole sorting algorithm question is hilarious to me because nine, 99% of the developers are just going to pull something off the shelf, right? And use that and forget about it. Um, I want the guy who's, you know, more of, <clears throat> well, I the problem I solved was we were having issues with our people uh, understanding this particular part of the user interface. So I, you know, took a couple hours to kind of rethink about it and interview my users to figure out what it was that was causing their issues and then fix the problem, you know, essentially do a small interface. Those are the people I want who are more concerned about the people aspect of it and the product they're delivering and how they approach it than the person who can go, well, I technically solved this problem and it was great.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I remember um we don't want to we don't want to hire people who are you know butter knives when it comes to your technical skills. They have to have something yes. on the ball. But That's that person correct. you mentioned made that customer connection and went the extra mile. Showed a lot of initiative to understand what was the problem with people not adopting that feature. Right. Exactly. In in the book you talk about like cross functional teams. And, and you mm-hmm. say, hey, we, we want to, you know, the days of the big battalion, like, a, a, you know, 20 DBAs, 100 developers, you know, 30 uh, ops, operations guys. That's not what we want. We want to see small groups of ninjas. Yep. Can you kind of elaborate on that? How do you see that working? Sure there like a red hawk
1: yeah so the idea is um you know a lot of times we'll hire folks at a lower salary to just handle you know these are the day in day out problems right and instead of you know hiring one or two guys who are more focused on okay how do i automate this how do i make my life easier we end up with 100 folks who are um, going back to the monkeys pulling levers uh, type of response into just Being that person who's day in, day out, punching the clock, coming in, pulling the lever, going home, right? And that's not what we want. I want people who can solve problems. What we find is that small teams of ninjas who can communicate well start off and are going to approach problems much differently than a large group. Large groups are going to sit there and assign out little tasks to everybody. And they're going to do their task and they're going to come back to more. They're coming back essentially to the hamster feeder. And so we want to stop that. We want to make small teams of folks working together on a project who are, you know, wholly invested in it from a success standpoint and can then, you know, crank out the stuff that they need to do. And, you know, it's funny because our original conversation started off because microcontainer being able to do small snippets of code, well, that's how that's done. So if you can get a small team of individuals to, who can work on those small components together, then it ends up being a much better experience.
0: That's, and that's, okay, so this is perfect because you mentioned, hey, we're really excited about Kubernetes and orchestration. And you've yep. talked about micro containers. Uh, and for instance, you know, Ryan over there at Five Talent, he really opened up my eyes when it came to hey, microservices work not just for the big boys, but for everyone as far as reusability. Yep. Um but there are some like i did an interview recently on radio tfs and and the interviewers shocked me a little bit because they said listen the pendulum is swinging back um a lot of people are seeing the downsides of containers and distributed computing and latency and and (laughs) issues with uh you know being able eventual consistency right with troubleshooting and lack of transactions and blah 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 i don't know if i see that as being the case that that the pendulum is swinging back on microservices. What's your stance on this? Where do you see us going, I guess?
1: Yeah, so again, it's, uh, you know, Ryan tends to go more towards microservice everything. I tend to go more for the pragmatic approach. There are some uh, industries where lack of uh, transaction uh, type processing is probably not going to work. Bankings, right? You're going to need those transactional locks for obvious reasons, right? We want to make sure people's money in their accounts that needs to be there. But for other things, you know, uh, your your large platforms on the internet, sure, why not break it up into smaller containers? I mean, why not do stuff like that? That's how these large companies are spinning themselves up so quickly. Is that they're focused on you know doing small things. This started off in Scrum, really, right? We start right. taking off bite-sized chunks to get the elephant, you know, digested. We don't need to take on the whole elephant at once, just break it off into small pieces and go into sprints. And I think that's something that gets lost on everybody is that it's ultimately the microservices kind of became an extension of the scrum methodology. And so I think it's if we w- you know, in 10 years we're gonna look back and we're gonna say, yeah, you know, there were for the monolithic systems, there did exist a reason for those to continue working. Uh, You know, our power companies still use monolithic services for the most. Could they benefit from microservices? Sure. I could see a couple instances where, you know, having microservices handle small little robotic actions work. Right. But we need to consider it like we consider, you know, essentially cron jobs 20 years ago, where we had these little tiny scripts doing these things that were just maintenance tasks. That's kind of what a microservice is, right? So it's one of those things that over time, I think we're going to find that, everybody gets excited about something and then they want to you know jump on the bandwagon immediately and do it for everything um you know it's it's funny because i'm looking at my laptop and it says containerize all the things but is that a practical approach probably not there are some things out there that do need you know that extra level of it's why java and c and c plus plus and c sharp still exist because you do need strongly typed languages for some aspects for a good portion of it no i would say that strong small Compact scripting languages work just as fine like JavaScript.
0: Absolutely. It, it's funny. Um, you know, I think um, Amazon was part of leader in that around 2004 or so when they started really looking into this. And they went into it just from the same standpoint you did where you said, listen, small groups of dinges are the way to go. Yep. And they said, they said, listen, we want to, We know for a fact a team size of you know, a two pizza size team is, is optimal. Eight to 12 right. people, maybe 12, you know, that might be a yep. little high. So how do we make that work with an application? You know, in a very, very small service, it does one thing and does it well. And, you know, there's the saying, after a while, you do end up shipping your org chart. Mm-hmm. Uh, so having our service layer resemble the physical layout, of these very small, teams of ninjas to me it makes perfect sense Um, and it may be a a must-have when it comes to large enterprise.
1: Yep and it's there is a danger there that I want to caution everybody because they're going to start thinking oh geez I'll just reduce the size of my team and I'll be great. (laughs) That's not what we're saying. (laughs) What we're saying is that for functional projects having a team of more than 12 people is probably unmanageable. There is an old um, I think it's a Roman methodology around leaders within armies that a person can lead only so many people at one time right and that's the issue is that when you get into leaders who are managing more than a certain amount of folks they lose all their focus and the ability to run the project and they go strictly into just oh. That doesn't work, <clears throat> but what we're saying is take those large projects break them up into smaller trunks and if you're a scrum shop you're going to do that anyway, so. Then you apply teams to that. And what you'll figure out, especially, you know, going back to the cross-functional team aspect, you start to figure out who works well together, who doesn't work well together. Um, Just because, you know, person A and person B don't work well together doesn't necessarily mean that person C and person A won't work fabulously. And maybe even B and C work well together. So you start to build out those teams and you start to, you know, not necessarily keeping people away from each other, but keeping your players that work really well and get things done quickly together within those small functions.
0: Yeah. That's, and I know a lot of people, there's a certain amount of microservice envy where people say, oh, we have this huge clunky monolith and, oh, if only we could go back five years, we wouldn't be stuck yep. in this hell. But you're, that's not, for a lot of people, starting out with microservices can be an anti-pattern because you don't know yes. your domain boundaries yet. Right. So maybe, maybe you go back and you refactor and you split off a couple pieces that, can, that need to scale at peak periods. And those are the ones you start out with microservices.
1: <laughs> and web applications are so good at being able to split up like that. Uh, it's, is there extra work? Are you having to rework some things? Sure. But if you're doing things right anyway, you're going to be refactoring at all times, right? Right. So ultimately, you just have to draw a line in the sand. Okay, as of July 5th, This service is now going to be moved to a microservice and here's how we're going to do it. Here's the road.
0: Yeah. So a line in the sand saying any any new functionality in this area is going to go here to a more modern microservice. And that's a better pattern for us. That's absolutely right. And it also kind of helps with the hiring pinch point that you mentioned, because maybe there's not, you know, um, a thousand great JavaScript developers or or Node.js or React programmers in the Central Oregon area. And maybe there's times where using Go or a different programming language is going to fit this better from a performance standpoint. If it's a microservice, as long as your APIs are consistent, you can choose whatever technology you want under the covers. And it allows you to hire more broadly. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, In the book, another thing I really liked in our talk that was great was you mentioned the power of of code. You talk about kindergarten rules. What does that mean?
1: So it's, you know, the sandbox theory. Um, if, if you're playing with if you're a bunch of kids playing in a sandbox, eventually someone's going to come tromping through and stomp on the sand. And the, the average kindergartner is probably going to break down and, you know, into absolute tears. And I'm a strong believer that, you know, emotional things carry through us uh, for our entire life. Those same rules you could apply if don't stomp on someone else's sandcastle, take that and now magnify it up to code reviews. So if you're in a code review with a bunch of people and this person is discussing their methodology behind the code they just wrote, they want to talk about it with folks, maybe get some ideas, that they take the opportunity to give critical, thoughtful advice and not just sit there and and trash the other person. Everybody has varying levels of and as well as varying levels of how they approach things. Some people approach problems differently you know, a jigsaw puzzle isn't always put together the same way. So in the kindergarten rules is you're in someone else's sandbox. So you're going to be respectful. You're not going to stomp on their sandcastle. You're going to talk to them respectfully. You're going to ask thoughtful questions and not just criticize form or anything like that. You're going to come up with ideas that are focused on how could this be better improved, you know, and, That's where a more senior developer will help out quite a bit where they can actually provide that experience to a junior developer and say, okay, "Okay, I see what you did there and that was good, but have you considered, you know, this particular pattern instead and apply this and instead of using it as a, you know, a, a wand to beat down the developer for bad development, it's more of, okay, let's teach you now how to do this.
0: So and, and obviously there's there's a balance here because we don't want to have like a rubber stamp process. Yeah, it looks yes. fine, you know, and you don't want to be this this gauntlet either. So how do yep. you kind of is there a way that you like seeing people like words or phrases when they're doing this, this review? Yes,
1: exactly. So the a uh, uh, good example of this is uh, uh, I see that you have used. Uh, this particular variable in a lot of different scopes. Say you're just using a web-based link where scoping is not. And so maybe you need to declare this as a constant above that kind of thing. So instead of saying, God, that was a stupid idea, right? You can say, <laughs> hey, you yeah, know, it would be better. And, you know, in these languages where scoping is weak, why don't you go ahead and make this as a constant up here and just have that nice, respectful conversation way. So you're going to avoid words like stupid, um, obviously lowest ones. It'll probably even get you in trouble with HR, right. but also, um, you know, that's not <laughs> how I would have done it. You know, that's another negative way of saying it. it's you want to approach it as more of a, Hey, you know, I, I can see what you've done here. I see why it's working this way. Let's discuss scoping and you know how you could make this better and more resilient by doing this, and teach them. Use it as a teaching moment instead of just a way of making them feel bad for doing something a certain
0: way. You mentioned a story that kind of for me was illuminating about. Um, I think you brought in an outsider once at mm-hmm. a review, and things kind of went on the rocks. You want to tell us that one, that story?
1: Yeah, sure. So we had um, two development teams. One was focused on web, and one was focused on internal development of application. And these teams uh, answered up through the same structure, but basically had their own manager. And I was the manager of the internal development. And I had always been doing the you know kindergarten rules style of code review, and the other team did the Battle Royale, if you will, style of uh, coder. So, uh, what we started doing was our <laughs> made <Royale>. <laughs>
0: yeah. the loudest voice win. <laughs> yes, yeah, because that
1: idea is dumb. Why would you do that? You know, right? That kind you of are thing.
0: So, so stupid, my God! Are you a four-year-old? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Where did you learn how to code from Serial Box? So, and then
0: called and they wanted their, their programming model back. <laughs> right.
1: Exactly. <laughs> So we, so our managers above us had asked us to start doing more cross-functional things because they, were, they had sat in them both and they were you know wanting to build a, a more congenial environment. So the senior developer from the web team came over and sat in one of our code reviews and basically with the aspect from bringing the aspect from his team. And he started to launch into a, a little bit of a tirade against something that was being done and against the person who was presenting and immediately the rest of the team kind of turned on and said hey that's not how we do things you know this is this is why we do it and that kind of thing so later on he comes to me and he apologized and said hey i'm sorry you know just it's just different from how we do things and i said it's fine you know just you know on by two game just realize how it is he said sure so uh you know fast forward gosh it's been so long it was like two or three months and He's sitting in a code review and, and his demeanor is completely changed from the last time. And he's participating in the way that everybody else was. And so it was good. He, he enjoyed it. And <clears throat> fast forward to six months later during a, um, a meeting, I started hearing stuff from the other side about, you know, the, our code reviews are changing too. We're going more towards this style and Subsequently, what we started noticing was that the quality of the code releases were coming better out of the other team, and uh, we all traced it back to just the fact that the senior developer had decided to go ahead and you know, start implementing the changes that we had made in our team with his team as well, and it worked pretty well. So overall, it became friendlier all the way around. We had uh, a couple of bad um, experiences in the meantime where uh, their team had uh, done a release that didn't go as well as planned. Uh, in fact, it actually caused a day or two of downtime. And uh, my team stepped in to help a little bit, and they were able to help. But it changed the culture on that side when they realized that, you know, it's if you play by these rules and you're nice and you can do things. And I'm not saying it has to be all huggy feely all the time, right. there are contentious moments where things happen, but consider the people first. And when you do that i think you get a lot better results and it was funny because uh, i had just seen an article i think it was that a recent study of uh, employers who focus on bottom line results only uh, typically their employees will actually turn against them and work against what they are uh, striving for and so it kind of reminded me it's like yeah that's i can see that happening that if you focus on more results bottom line et cetera et cetera that you're not going to get the result you want because people are going to actively subvert it.
0: That's so interesting, so, yeah. though, that, that I mean, it took time. You didn't push this style on this other team. Nope. But uh, over time, you actually saw better quality code with doing a, a peer review process this way instead of the gauntlet.
1: Yeah. <laughs> exactly right. And it was, uh, you know, it was one of those things, too, where, They also adopted our method, so it used to be the manager would just choose random code and say, okay, defend it, you know, Mm -hmm. and they would all come at this person. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: You're kidding me. That's very funny.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And so our method had always been, you know, okay, this is X developers week to present, uh, so they're going to choose something that maybe they're, and I always encourage my folks to choose something you're having issues with or you're not exactly fully proud of and you want to get advice on and how to do it better. And because the team was respectful and how they approached that, I had n- very few issues of anybody wanting to, not wanting to bring forth troublesome. And so it, with their team, it just, it was a constant fear of, oh my God, is it going to be my code this week? You know, that
0: kind of thing, because- Oh my goodness.
1: It yeah. would They'd be given very little time to repair and all that. So it it does make a difference that if you give developers a little bit of autonomy, And a little bit of an ability to, you know, direct their future and as well as uh, make approaching problems painless. And, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, you are your own worst enemy, right? Because you're going to be the one who's going to be the most um, sensitive and most uh, downtrodden when it comes to poor code. Because you know it, whatever it is, you know what it, what's going on with, it. and you're just fearing the day that someone else comes to you and goes, "Oh, uh, yeah, that's bad," you know. And if you can just be honest and be willing with a team that's going to be open and uh, willing to help you out, I think you'll get a lot better result.
0: It's interesting you bring that up because um, there's a couple people I talked to, like Nathan Harvey of of Chef now Google, uh, Jeff Atwood. Uh, keith morris they all said if you want to get to continuous delivery start with effective code reviews you know, you need to have a release pipeline but you know shoot you need to have quality in your code and if you can catch most of these bugs and improve learning across your team with a very simple you know kind of a group effort why wouldn't you do this right exactly right so talk to me then a little bit about um DevSecOps, obviously, this is this is a feature. It's something that that you're concerned very much in, like with Red Hawk. Yeah. How does Red Hawk approach security and and kind of building security into the development pipeline?
1: So we're absolutely focused on you know the three major domains: confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Right. So <clears throat> confidentiality starts off with how are we securing the data? How are we making sure that data movement it remains secure? That Don't just consider okay my perimeter is detected, but go into the what if this particular code gets exposed or whatever else what would happen? And when you start to think about that from a risk mindset, you start to approach problems a little bit differently. So you start to think about, gosh, you know, am I is my container carrying credentials to the database? Am I not using a secure credential store? Why am I not doing that? You know, and you start to approach problems a little differently. Or you know, am I Use, d- using best practices for these particular security things. So we're always looking in the background as, okay, how to secure this. So when I did the Kubernetes bootcamp, <clears throat> the first part of it was was okay because I knew most of it, but what I was really looking forward to was the security module because I really wanted to see it secure. We had not deployed Kubernetes because we were concerned about security. And so the, for the most part, I would say I still am concerned about it, but I do know how to mitigate certain things now within a Kubernetes cluster? not going to be a security nightmare. And that if someone breaks into one container, you know, they're not going to be able to jump out and, you know, jump into other containers like a database. So That's interesting
0: because a lot of people are, are not using Docker or Kubernetes in production, especially because mm-hmm. of, hey, we have a shared kernel, we have a shared, you know, shared OS environment. It's a security nightmare. It is.
1: Yeah, it's not easy. So you have to consider what it is, and you have to put, it, you have to apply a risk-based type of methodology for it. Would I use a container to run an, a, a, you know, um, electronic health record system (EHR system)? Probably not. I'd probably want a hardened OS, hardened database, that kind of. Thing. It just doesn't make sense for me to to do it in that method because there's too much opportunities to have that uh, breaking down. But in the case of Kubernetes, I can create zones and say, okay, this server zone is only for secure item where I know that I can control the security. And so not only am I hardening the the Kubernetes layer, but I'm hardening the OS too. So is it harder? Is it more difficult? Oh, it is is almost insurmountably harder to uh, secure a Kubernetes cluster. And so it's, it's one of the reasons why we're not using it yet. Um, but it's on my radar because I really do want the coordination, you know, the ability to orchestrate all of my workloads, but I have to do it in a secure way. So I think a lot of folks, they get through the basic Kubernetes setup and they go, okay, I'm good. But what they did is they've got an OS that's not secured. They got enough, you know, they're not thinking about all the different layers. That could, because quite frankly, it's all shared memory space. Uh, the ability to link across there if if they can break out of their jails. So you just have to approach it the same way you approach system security It goes from the network layer on up doing the same.
0: Interesting. So, um, so you start looking at the data, not everything needs to be is, is PI in particular. Right. So there's some, there's some data stores and some application services that we can say are less, less secure. So those would be, you know, that, that'd that probably a good option for containers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And not only that, but it, it there could be some instances where PI could be containerized. It's, How you approach the again, you still have to go down to the OS layer and make sure the OS is secure. You have to, you know, make sure that your permissions and ACLs for Kubernetes are all set up properly. That not everybody's using root account (laughs) to manage the cluster. It's, you know, you have to be very purpose driven and and specific in how you're going to assign permissions and. Services don't need every permission in the world. I mean, gosh, it, it, OpenBSD did great work on privilege separation for things like SSH and, and different uh, applications like HTTP, uh, where they have their own forked to patch. It's Those are things that can be fixed, but you have to think about them and you have to absolutely, what is the worst that can happen? And what is the data that I'm trying to?
0: So you go beyond, hey, I've got a firewall, so we're fine. And you say <laughs> that, what you know which is hilarious but i actually heard that from an operations person not too long ago yes. Yes. <laughs> um assuming the red team is going to get in because they always do right yep give enough time what if this is exposed what's what's going to happen what's our next so again you're
1: going to approach it from a risk mindset right so you're going to try and create layers within there
0: and so the
1: more layers you can create the more you can slow it down and, and increase detection. The key is, for the most part, like you said, are they gonna get in? Probably likely, a lot of these red teams are really scary, right? Yes, but
0: they're much more skilled than we are.
1: (laughs) Exactly, so if you could, exactly. So if you could create layers where you can have detection points along the way that say, hey, this application is not behaving properly, you know, there's several ways you can approach it. Application not behaving properly, kill it, shut it down immediately. And so, if it starts doing something like it's, you know, you've got a container that's suddenly scanning the networks, okay, is that container supposed to do that? No, shut it down. So, you need to have tripwires throughout there and create those layers so that, you know, your database container isn't front and center (laughs) on the Kubernetes cluster where it's directly accessible because they're going to go after the database. You want to make sure that you have, you know, Start off, the load balancer is the only thing that's accessible right now, and they're going to have to breach the load balancer to get behind there and get to the other you know, portions of them. So, and it's funny because you mentioned firewalls, and firewalls are great, but too often we're applying them only at the perimeter. And really, firewalls need to be more center placed in the network nowadays to where you're creating zones. And those zones, and this is how Red Hawk designs our networks when we design it for customers, each zone is only allowed to talk on the exact services and ports that are needed down to the application layer for each of the different zones. So, my accounting person doesn't need access to the firewall management, except, you know, and neither does my engineer need access to the accounting database. There's just no reason for it. So, we zone our network out completely to where there are definite concerns where we say, This is the data we're protecting. Here's the people who have access to it. And if that person gets moved to a different department, they literally, in most cases, have to have their uh, network changed to where they're on a different network. <clears throat> and this and is, how, this is
0: the engagement it's model then that you favor with, with Red Hawk. This is co- companies come to you saying, we really want to harden our network and we want to set this up so security is first class. This is yep. Red Hawk's bread and butter.
1: Yep. It is the very thing that we do day in and day out is how do we make your network so segmented that if a person compromises this workstation, what is it they have access to now? And so we it's all risk-based methodology. And that's the same way I think about my containerization is what happens if this container is breached? What do they have access to? What can I control? What can I sh- I want to make it so that detection is going to be my best thing because having a human be able to pull a plug on something is infinitely better than trusting that, you know, they'd have not figured out some new evasion technique for your firewall.
0: So you want to have a human pull that lever and, and turn off that network connectivity or that service? Occasionally. Yep. Okay. So we
1: use, you know, we use things like uh, SIM, so Security Incident and Event Management, <clears throat> where it's looking for indicators of compromise, things that are happening on the network that can indicate something bad is about to happen. And then we're isolating those that are uh, coming up. So if it, we see a, you know, sudden a workstation suddenly want to communicate with a known command and control server, we're going to shut that workstation down immediately. And-
0: so um, did we talk enough about, you mentioned like confidentiality you know, how we secure data, you know, what do we cover enough about integrity and vulnerability with what you talked about previous to those three pillars?
1: No, so integrity is interesting too, right? Because we've recently learned that it's possible for bits to get screwed up here and there. In fact, we've seen it hard drives corrupt, things like that, right? Mm -hmm. And so while folks talk about integrity from a, you know, um, oh, am I displaying the data always correctly? Well, how am I maintaining that data as well? Am I ensuring that it can't be modified? Am I ensuring that it doesn't get corrupted either through human intervention or just you know natural way things that break down over time? You know, how do we do that? And so, integrity is important. is important, and it says, okay, so if I'm in a cluster and I'm using NFS as my storage backend, how am I going to make sure that that NFS storage is doing what it's supposed to do? It is. Who has access to that NFS storage? Could they go in and modify things outside of the application and make changes that would, you know, ultimately materially change what's stored? So that's really integrity in a snapshot. Availability is something that, you know, it's funny because availability uh, to a systems administrator means 100% uptime, right? That's what they really want in their lives. Availability really is, is the data available to the person who needs it at the right moment of time? that's what availability and so going back to the segmentation of containers you know does the high availability uh, proxy need access to the database probably not you know, unless you're load balancing database but going back okay so does it need to be available then no we can cancel availability because the load balancer doesn't So those are the kind of things that you have to think about. It's not just the positive aspect of it, but also the negative aspect.
0: Interesting. So um, a lot of times we're pushing a lot more burden upon the engineer, the developer, right? Saying, hey, you need to be more aware about testing. You need to think more about um, security, for example. It is these these thinking about quality and security at the get go instead of being a very late stage audit step it's a hard it's a very hard thing to for many developers to think about so if i'm a web developer do i just start with like the owasp list of top 10 vulnerabilities and build that into my pipelines or where where do i start
1: yes quite frankly
0: owasp
1: <laughs> I- SANS top 20 critical security controls, which has recently been changed, but uh, NIST also has their uh, uh, CIS controls, critical information security controls. Um, these are all things that every network needs to have a very basic step on, and it's it goes back to the, you know the conversation about reinventing the wheel with a sorting algorithm that is novel. Don't worry about it. Sorting algorithms are covered. You know. Yes. Instead of coming back with a you know new security idea about how I'm going to improve security, why not rely on the professionals who've been who this is their entire career to actually provide you with? So <clears throat> that's what I'm saying as far as the um, I lost my.
0: Well, it, it, so this is the the OAuth top ten. All developers need to be aware of yes. this. Yes, and yep. the you mentioned the SANS top twenty critical vulnerability controls. These are CISP. Um, we'll uh, put link there. Yes. In blog? So
1: NIST. NIST probably has the best one, yeah, so NIST, National Information Security, and uh, NIST has a critical security control, CSC or CISC, depending on which uh, side of the coin you land on, but for the most part, these are the basic security controls of any organization. And it covers all the administrative, technical, and all that type of controls. And it's not very prescriptive. It doesn't say go out and buy a Cisco firewall. It says you should have a firewall. Then it's up to you, the reader, to figure out which firewall do I need. And so you're going to do your best practices research about who's currently the best firewall vendor, you know, or does this firewall meet my needs? Do I need to buy the best? Those are the kind of things that you make a decision based on your risk and what it is you're trying to protect. But these critical controls uh, overall from, a, from an organization represent everything an organization needs to do. OWASP is going to focus on the web aspect, right? It's going to be the web application. So that is for a developer, OWASP key. But for organizations starting off overall, I, mean, I love the CEOs who are developers, um, but I think you should also probably know the critical security controls that cover outside of development.
0: That's, that's interesting. Is, um, and I'm thinking here about like on the cloud, and and I had a friend of mine recently say, Dave, you know what what we are spending now on on security experts, and this is a large semiconductor company. He said mm-hmm. it's a rounding error for what like Microsoft spends on security yeah. people on their side of things, like the blue badges. Is security easier on the on the cloud? I'm I'm thinking about things like the Azure Key Vault and you know credential storage. Is it is it easier to build truly secure applications with a cloud-based set of Services and applications.
1: Yes, um, and only because it is well documented, they're going to cover a lot of the basics for you out of the gate. Uh, if you do things that they as they recommend them, right? So a good example is that if you try to set up a, a, a system and you're trying to use the root account only to manage your um, your environment, it's going to warn you. You should really create individual users, set up Iams, that kind of thing. So you need to do follow the best practices because you know it's um it's the the company from 2014 whose aws account was hacked and they took took um took it over and deleted all the information and shut down the company you don't want to be that person in the news so you want to follow those best practices when you get the gigantic warning and then it says you shouldn't be doing this it probably is true and you probably shouldn't find a better
0: what about what should i know let's say Beyond being like an application developer, let's say I'm a DBA, Mm -hmm. what do I need to know about security, like at the SQL or the the data model level?
1: So again, there are different uh, controls that will cover database security and making sure that, but really with databases, it boils down to access. If you can control the credentials, you can control the access, you're not giving your applications the root account to your database. You know, you're giving out individual, this application can only speak to this database. Heck, this application can only speak to this database and only read from these tables. You really need to do that. Uh, Don't give applications more access than they need, right? It's, I think we used to call it the principle of least privilege. Right. So it's, same thing applies everywhere. Uh, And it's funny because everybody wants to really make these complicated rules for depending on, well, gosh, if you're a database administrator, you should do, Nope. Principle of least privilege is probably the number one thing that anyone can do to secure their environment.
0: And uh, we need to be thinking about things like encryption at rest, right? And do we need to worry as much about encrypting data in transit?
1: Yes. So it's funny because everybody discusses this data in transit uh, for encryption should be done for all the things. I'm a big fan of encrypt everything and it's it's important. So especially like in your, uh, fortunately I'm not really familiar with Azure, but I'll speak to Amazon because that's really, they do have and do make it easy for you to encrypt your database connections and you should absolutely use it. Um, there's no telling what's between you and that database, right? They purposely obscure it so that you don't have to worry about the connections between the two but there could be untold number of routers and all it takes is one guy to plug in you know, there and span a port and start capturing network traffic and just look for all the unencrypted. Would it require a large packet trap type of situ- situation? Sure, you're gonna have to have a massive server to capture all that data. But if you encrypt it, you you protect
0: yourself and you protect. Um, do you like the word DevSecOps? What do you think about that movement in general?
1: <laughs> it's a, I think it's good. I think that DevSecOps should just be the default. Quite frankly, uh, everybody should be feeling the the pinch from security. It's you don't want to be Capital One this week, right? With their breach um, from a random internet person in Seattle. Now they found this person because she didn't cover her tracks very well. But it's it, nobody's talking about how did she get in and how did they? How was she able to steal this data? Because it looks like it mostly has three buckets. So I'm questioning as to how they were managed. <clears throat>
0: Um, I think one of the, one of the key parts of, I don't know about the word, but the concept I agree with is that we don't want to have security happening as like a last second like audit step, which means the project inevitably gets delayed as we're rushing to patch thing. Um, but security people in general have a reputation of not being fun to drink with, I guess.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, like a, I'm not trying yeah, to pick
0: on you here, Tyler. You seem like you'd be fun. But.
1: Well, so my boss cracks me up because he's like, today we were on the phone with a client. We were discussing uh, possible vectors of attacks. And our client was like, well, you know, we have USB disabled on all of our workstations. Like, great. I go, so the employee takes the USB home. The USB, it does something to them, exposes them. And the person at the other end says, well, I'm going to blackmail you because I know you're an employee of X Bank." And I want you to go do this, this, and this in the bank, or I'm going to expose you. So, and she, the client on the other line, she paused. She goes, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> I go, well, that's my job is to think, how bad can you get? So, <clears throat> you know, it's funny because we always joke nowadays that, no, oh, nobody picks up a USB in a parking lot. What they don't do is they don't pick up the USB in the parking lot, take it into the office, plug it into their office computer they take it home they're really curious and they want to see why does this say 2019 payroll on it and they want to go look at it so for the most part we have scared people enough but we still get them with the usb drops and that's you know something we have to think about is attack vectors are always going to be there um even the old ones because human curiosity is going to always be a part of our lives it's interesting
0: (laughs) i think that's great so um do you have any closing words of wisdom for us? Like if there was one thing you'd like anyone listening to this podcast take away, what would that be?
1: You know, it's funny. Um, consider the people, I think, for the most part. Uh, I don't think and I don't believe that any one person gets up in the morning and goes, gosh, I'm going to go to work today and do the worst job of my life. Like everybody gets up. Maybe they're tired. Maybe they're worn out. Maybe they're a little bit burned out because, you know, things have been busy. But they don't come in with the the expressed desire to destroy the company. Now, could it happen? Sure. My risk brain says that, yes, these people sometimes will come in and say, I want to destroy the company. But by the same token, we have to still consider the person. And so my closing thought really is in all things that we should be doing, we should be considering the person. The internet's been famous for making everybody anonymous and, and becoming easy for us to remove humanity from people but i think in general if we stop doing that it'd be a much better place
0: i love it well tyler thanks so much for for spending time with us on a podcast i really learned a lot about security and just uh red hawk and kind of where you see our, us going in this industry it's really fascinating
1: yeah thanks dave appreciate it
0: thank you for listening if you found any of this helpful please share it with your friends and coworkers. And we would love your five-star reviews. See you next time.